Well, good morning. If you are with the children's ministry, there will be some teachers in the back. You are all excused. And for the rest of us, we are starting a new series in the book of Colossians. So if you will, go to Colossians chapter 1. That's on page 1217 on my very particular Bible. Um, should be towards the end of your Bible. If you need a Bible, there's some Bibles in the back. Someone will probably bring you a Bible if you need it. We're going to be looking at the first 23 verses this morning. Uh, a, f- a few years ago, I, uh, I saw an interview with Oprah, kind of the cultural prophet of the day, I suppose. And she said these words, I quote. She said, what I know for sure is that speaking your truth is the most powerful tool we have. Your truth. There's a lot of people talking about their truth these days, aren't there? Loud voices, sometimes angry voices, often conflicting voices. My question to you this morning is this. How do you know which voices to listen to? I mean, I'll put it simply like this. How do you know if you should listen to me this morning? That's the question at the heart of the Colossian church that I want us to consider this morning. What this church knew, what had been told to them, that the sort of things that they believed that was passed on to them, well, some teachers were coming in and saying, actually, don't believe those things. Or you can believe them, but there's some extra things that you need to do and believe. And so there was a sort of spiritual crisis in Colossae. All these voices, all these messages, and they were wondering which voices they ought to listen to. And so in light of that, Paul pens these words, this letter to the book in in the church in Colossae, and basically reassuring them that they were grounded in the true faith, that they were Christians, and that they needed to cling to Christ. The the start of this letter very much is akin to C.S. Lewis. He wants this church to believe in a sort of mere Christianity. So the big idea, and it should be behind me this morning, is simply this, that Christ is supreme and sufficient for all of life. Now, that's the big idea, but in order to kind of unwrap that big idea, I want to kind of work our way through this text um, in four ways, okay? So Paul, in many ways, in answering this big, uh, all these questions that were going on, these sort of controversies, he reassures them of four realities, and that's how we're going to look through these first 23 verses. So first, he reassures them of who they are, that's verses 1 through 5. Then Paul wants to reassure them of what they've heard, verses 6 to 8. Then third, he reassures them of of, uh, what was theirs, that's verses 9 through 14. And then lastly, he reassures them of who was theirs, 
verses 15 through 23. So that's how we're going to look at it. It's Paul's reassurance to this church of various truths. And the first one we're going to look at is the reassurance of who this church was. So let's look at this first five verses. I'm going to read them. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the saints of faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God, our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. We're just going to stop there. So first, Paul's reassurance, he reassures this church of who they are. So let me just kind of set the scene, right? Paul didn't plant this church. Evidently, uh, a man named Epaphras was converted under the ministry of Paul in one of his missionary journeys. He heard the message of the gospel, is transformed, and then he goes back and he starts kind of gossiping the gospel, telling people about it, and he plants this church in the city of Colossae. So Paul's never been, Paul's never actually, Paul didn't uh, plant this church. It was planted from Epaphras. And things are going well, well, initially. But then around 60 or 61 AD, when Paul's imprisoned in Rome, Paul receives a report. And the report basically is saying that this church is struggling. They're struggling with all these voices that are speaking in to the church from within. And so Paul writes and pens these words in order to encourage them and to help confront these errors in the church. Now, I'll just say this, that there is a lot of ink that has been spilled trying to get to what this sort of heresy was, what the, these sort of un, uh, unbiblical truths were that were kind of going around in Colossae during this time. And there's not a lot of consensus, but I do think that we don't know um, exactly what it is. I do think we get a flavor of it. We, we, we sort of get clues and hints about what's going on. And, and we're going to see more of these clues and hints as the book goes on. But one thing we do know is that there was some sort of teaching that was going on in the church that was syncretistic in nature. So it was saying, it was, it was sort of emphatically and kind of um, more or less Christian, but then adding some Jewish elements and some pagan elements and kind of swirling around. We, we know that at least in a general sense, there was a sort of syncretistic spirituality that was kind of being distributed from various teachers and people within this church. And it was alluring people into thinking that that's kind of the good stuff, right? Christianity is sort of basic, but we need to add various things in order to get to the true goodness of this new religion that was taking root in Colossae. And so that's the occasion which prompts Paul to write this letter. Go there to verse 1. There we see the author, Paul. He greets in a very kind of traditional way. He greets the church in verses 1 and 2. And then verse 3, Paul launches out into thanksgiving, right? He, he, he says that every time um, he, he prays for the church, he just thanks God for them. Pretty remarkable. I mean, Paul, Paul's never met these people, and every time he thinks of them, right, every time he prays for them, on the top of his prayer list is this church, and he just gives thanks 
for them. And particularly, he says he gives thanks for what he's heard about them. And he's heard in verse 3 and 4 and 5, he's heard, uh, um, or verse 4 and 5, he's heard kind of three things about them. He's heard of their faith in Jesus, verse 4, their love expressed to the saints, and then verse 5, their hope laid up in heaven. Faith, love, hope. Now, when Paul does this, Paul links this in 1 Corinthians 13 and 1 Thessalonians 1. When Paul links faith, hope, and love together, it's like apostolic shorthand for genuine Christianity. And so what Paul's doing here is he's saying, you are genuine Christians. You have faith in the right object, Jesus Christ. You have manifested that faith through love to the brethren, to the saints, to the church. And you have hope hidden in heaven. You have a hope, a heavenly hope. Paul, who's never heard them, he's heard of their faith in Christ. He's heard of their love for one another. And he's heard of their hope laid out. And so he reassures them that they are authentically Christians. And I think it's clear that one of the things that was going on in this era is that subtly uh, there was an erosion of assurance that they were Christians. So whatever was going around, they were saying, well, you might not actually be Christians. And so Paul, right out of the get-go, says, no, 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 no. I've heard of your faith in Christ and your love and your hope, and I want to reassure you that you are authentically Christians. Now, I think there's always going to be a subtle temptation within churches, right? Not just in the first century, but even in the 21st century, there is always a subtle temptation to have teachers or people come in to say, uh, well, yeah, you've got part of the gospel, but you need a deeper, fuller knowledge, or um, you, you need to listen to me because I'll unlock the Bible for you, or I'll, I'll give you a deeper spirituality, or a, a fuller experience of the Holy Spirit, or I'm going to do this or that, right? These teachers are always going to come along. For 2,000 years, teachers come parading a deeper theology, unlocking this code or that code, promising a fuller understanding of Christianity it's what C.S. Lewis in Screwtape Letters called Christianity and, right? It's, it's adding any sort of entanglement to Christianity. It's saying, yes, you must believe in Christ Jesus, have faith in him, manifested in true uh, kind of regenerate love and hope in heaven. And, and he lists all these things. So some of them are funny, Christianity and vegetarianism, right? Right? We, we could make our list, right? They, 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 they change from generation to generation. But there's always, sometimes in churches, a tendency for people to come in to say, oh, yes, this is what it means to be a Christian, but you also have to do, and then the list goes on. And Paul, right out of the get-go, says, no, 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 no. Whatever these teachers are saying, you are authentically Christians, you have believed in the mere gospel, the object of that gospel being Jesus Christ. You are manifesting fruit of a transformed life through love and hope. Whatever those teachers are saying, you are Christians. Well, just by way of application, if a teacher comes to you 
presenting that sort of message. Saying you need something, you need the gospel and, you need Christianity plus. Don't listen to them. And that's Paul's basic message. He is reassuring this church that they're Christians. Now, what is the basic message to which uh, you could be saved? Well, that's starting in verse 5. That's the second thing. In verse 5, Paul then reassures the Colossian church of what they've heard, that the, the purity and truth of the message in which Paul preached to Epaphras, which then he delivered to this church. So look at kind of part five, or um, part B of verse five through verse eight. Of this you have heard before the word of truth, that is the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing as it is also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. So it also seems whatever's going around here, whatever sort of teaching and false teaching is going around here, it was also casting some doubt on the message in which Epaphras and maybe other teachers were preaching. Now, I don't know this for sure, but I, I get the sense in which maybe even these teachers were pitting Epaphras against Paul, saying, Paul's got deeper theology, a, a greater gospel that Epaphras doesn't even know that they had the inner, they were in the inner circle and they did know. And so here in these few verses, Paul reassures this church that the message that Epaphras preached, the message that was preached to them is the gospel. You see it there in verse 5. It's called the truth. It is the true, apostolic, pure gospel. And notice, uh, this church, they're not unique, are they, right? This same message, this same gospel didn't just go to them. It's going to the whole world, right? It's going to Ephesus and Rome. It's going to the known world, this essential gospel. And it's bearing fruit, and it's advancing. And the same is true for us. I shared a bit of this um, earlier in the membership meeting that we had, but um, last year, when uh, the Taliban overran uh, much of, if not all, of Afghanistan, there was a church that met in central Afghanistan, about 130 in, in all. So this is, this is the mega church in Afghanistan, all right? And soon after, it became clear that they had a sort of bullseye, and so they got out and went to a refugee camp in another country seeking religious, um, kind of uh, religious refugee status. And so they are at this, they're at another country awaiting to actually be placed. This entire church in this refugee is awaiting to come actually to the Seattle-Tacoma area. Now, they don't speak our language, as far as I know. They probably don't dress like us. Their services probably look a lot different than us. They sing differently, like different food, right? We could think of so many things in which they are different than us about. And yet, here's the point. What is the message that saved those men and women 
It's the same message that saved us. The same gospel that just kind of birthed this church in Afghanistan is the same message that we are clinging to. It's going out all over. And that's Paul's point. The message that he preached and that, was, that Epaphras was saved is the exact same message that Epaphras was preaching there in Colossae. And then if you go down to verse 7 and 8, this is why Paul reassures them that Epaphras is a faithful fellow servant. He's, Paul's basically saying, I'm, I'm advocating for Epaphras. What he's preaching is true Christian doctrine. He's preaching the gospel to you. Do not be swayed by these other people who would kind of say that Epaphras is hiding something from you. No, no, no. He's preaching the true, pure, apostolic message. Now, what, what is that message? Well, this is the cool thing, and we're going to see it all throughout the book of, uh, of Colossians, that Paul doesn't just say, um, here's the gospel. He like goes back to it time and time and time again. In our, in our uh, little, what, 23 verses, three times he kind of gives a definition of the gospel. So look down in verse, uh, verse 13 and 14. The gospel is that God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, that's Jesus Christ, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Or look at verse 19. For in him, Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Or just keep reading verse 21 once again. Another way of saying the same thing. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present to you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. This is the gospel. The consistent and heavenly call upon humanity to turn to Jesus to find reconciliation. It's it's the call to to turn from us in repentance and faith and put our faith in Christ Jesus, which leads to salvation. It leads to words like reconciliation and justification. Freedom from the domain of Satan himself. Now, if you don't know what that looks like, or if you want more information, or if you want to say, "I, I don't know this gospel, but I want to know more about this gospel, come talk to me after. Just Just find me. Come set up an appointment or, or just probably better yet, just talk to someone next to you. My guess is they would love to share the gospel with you. Now, my guess also is for the Christians here, you know that gospel, you believe that gospel, you trust that gospel. But I think one of the things that we're called to do isn't just to believe the gospel. It's also like the church here. It's to guard the gospel. It's to guard the gospel from saying more than the gospel has to say or less than the gospel. From from, from putting entailments on the gospel. We're called as a church to guard the purity of the gospel message. That's in one sense what it means to be a member of a church. To guard and protect the gospel. Now, how do you do that? I think you do it for many ways. But I'm just going to give you one. One way a church or you as an individual can guard the gospel. 
I think the best way to guard the gospel, protect the gospel in, in, for its purity and in the essence of the gospel is to continually teach the gospel, preach the gospel, meditate on the gospel. I think that is the best way to guard it, right? If we just assume the gospel, we're one generation away from rejecting the gospel. So, so the more we teach it to our children and grandchildren, the more we warm our hearts by the fire of the grace of God and the gospel, the more we point others to it, the more we're reminded that we were saved by grace and not through works, the more we do this, the more we will stand for nothing less than the pure gospel. So, so I'm just telling you this. If you ever hear a gospel that is contrary to the gospel that, we, that is in our statement of faith, it is incumbent on you not just to say, that's not the gospel, but, but in one sense, that's easy to stand up against that. But I think a church filled with men and women who are constantly meditating on, teaching, preaching, thinking, singing the gospel, well, that's a church that will stand for nothing less. So that's second. Paul reassures this church of the truth of the gospel that came. But then third, let's move on. Paul then reassures the Colossian church, of what was theirs. And that's verse 9 through 14. So let me read that section. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered you from the domain of darkness and transferred you from the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Now, some of you are those engineer types that would love to diagram this because it's a complicated. Okay, that's not me. Paul just drives me nuts sometimes, okay? So here is my poetry major, English major attempt at explaining all of this amazing uh, kind of, you know, he, he makes a statement and then he uh, qualifies it and there's sub points or whatever. So here's my best attempt at summarizing, okay? In verse 9 through 14, there is actually one prayer, one petition, followed by the purpose of that prayer, and then four portraits explaining that prayer. Okay? Isn't that good? Prayer, purpose, and then four portraits. Okay? I think even your English translation has like semicolons. It's trying to communicate that there's, I, I really do think there's, there's a prayer, there's the purpose of what, what this prayer, the hope of this prayer, and then what this prayer would look like in the daily lives of Christians. So, verse 9, let's look at this petition, this prayer. He prays without ceasing, asking that they may be filled with the knowledge of his will. That's the prayer. Now, I often think when we say things, and maybe this is like the Christianese of our culture, but when we say things like, oh, God's will, we say like, I'm praying for God's will, um, of where to go to college, or um, I've got a few options of houses to buy, or of w- what job I should take, uh, and so I'm praying for God's will, right? Isn't that how we use it in a general sense? Now, I'm not saying that that's not a bad way to use it necessarily. Like, 
It's good to pray and be open to the possibility. And God does work in mysterious ways to lead Christians to, to, to various uh, providential ends. I'm just saying that that is not the primary way the Bible talks about God's will. God's primary way of talking about God's will is not like God is just like putting little breadcrumbs all throughout your world that you're supposed to discover. Actually, when the Bible talks about God's will, it's more often than not talking not about the future, it's talking about the present. So let me give you a few examples. Psalm 143, verse 10. The psalmist writes, Teach me to do your will, for you are my God. May your good spirit lead me on level ground. So so notice that here in that text, doing God's will, finding God's will, it's synonymous with obeying God's revealed will, isn't it? Or just one from the New Testament. I'll do two from the New Testament. Ephesians chapter 5, 15 and 17. Paul writes this, Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Therefore, don't be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. So here, avoiding evil, avoiding foolishness is God's will for your life. Okay? So you want, you want to know what God's will is your life? Don't be foolish. I can say it definitively. Or one more, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Paul writes, and this is hard. Rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. So so again, here we have not discovering God's hidden will, but here is God's will for us. That no matter what circumstances, you continually pray, that you rejoice in the good times and the bad, and that you give thanks in all circumstances. That's the primary way God's word talks about God's will. It's not about his hidden will. It's about obeying his revealed will in our lives. And the same is true in our text. This is Paul's prayer, that they would obey God's revealed will. That's his prayer. And so the prayer isn't primarily that they would understand and get a deeper sort of Uh, revelation of something that they didn't have. Actually, it's that they would obey what they already do have, which is God's, uh, God's word. And to have confidence in that. And one of the reasons why I, I think we should be much more concerned with obeying God's revealed will than God's hidden will. And I'll just say sort of this way is that if you're more concerned with and if you're pursuing um, actively obeying God's revealed will, my guess is you don't need to worry about God's hidden will. You're going you're gonna to live wisely in this world. And how do I know that? Just keep reading. Verse 9, right? That you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Now, uh, I think a better translation would be this of verse 9. I think it makes it clear. I think it makes the point Paul is making a bit clearer. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives. I think that's a better 
translation. Meaning that as you read God's word, as you study God's word, the spirit of God applies it to your heart and life, making you wise. And that's Paul's prayer. That that Christians would be filled with the knowledge of his will, his revealed will, empowered by the Holy Spirit. But to to what end, right? Do, Do we just learn God's word because it's great to learn God's word? No, verse 10 tells us what the purpose of this will is. And the purpose of this will is that believers might be utterly pleasing to the Lord. That, 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 is, that is the end and goal of Bible study. Okay? That is the end and goal of this prayer. It is that we would live in such a way that we would be pleasing to Christ Jesus. That's the purpose. Grammatically speaking, after kind of talking about the prayer and petition, that's the purpose, that we would, and where is that, verse 10, that we would be fully pleasing to him. Now, I know that is abstract. Like, what does that even mean? How, how could me, how could you be pleasing to the Son of God, to be pleasing to Jesus Christ? That just seems abstract. Well, good thing you asked that question, because Paul goes, I'm going to give you some portraits of what this looks like, right? So Paul gives four portraits, starting in verse 10. Portrait one, it looks like Christians bearing fruit in every good work. That's what it looks like. That's what pleasing Christ looks like. It's bearing fruit in every good work. Second, it means, or it looks like Christians growing in the knowledge of God, right? It's an unquenchable desire to just read God's word and study God's word and know God's word and apply God's word. That's what pleasing Jesus looks like. Third, Christians are strengthened as to display great endurance and patience. You want to know what it looks like to live a life pleasing to Jesus? It looks like a patient life and in a life full of endurance. And then lastly, Christian joy. Um, Christians joyfully give thanks to the Father. See that in verse 12 and 8. But particularly giving thanks to, to all of God's redemptive accomplishments in Christ. So you you see those people who just never get beyond their salvation? Like, why would God save me? Why would God's grace come to me? That's what pleasing Christ looks like. It's people never getting beyond the utter astonishment that Christ would save you. And that's the portrait he paints. That's what pleasing Jesus looks like. It looks like a life filled with fruitfulness, hungry for God and his word, enduring patience, with joy and appreciation for all that God has done to bring us to salvation. And, and, and in some ways, I think um, those are pretty good descriptions of the Christian life, aren't they? I, I don't think Paul's being exhausted. There's others. But I think those are really good descriptions of what it looks like to live a life pleasing to Jesus Christ. Now, Paul's prayer is not that they would obey God's knowledge in what they didn't know. He once again is saying, you have God's will. You know God's will. I'm praying that you please Christ by obeying God's revealed will. And that's Paul's prayer, that they would take God's will, apply it to their lives, pleasing Jesus, manifesting in all of these portraits. And I just want to point out once again that Paul prays this for a church he doesn't really know. But I think this is what 
Christianity is all about. Authentic Christianity is about churches praying for other churches that we don't even know because of, the, because of what we've heard about their faith in Jesus. I mean, just as a plug, this is why in the pastoral pray, prayer, we always pray for churches and, and people that we've never met. This is what Christians do. We pray for other Christian churches. And just as an aside, I will say that I think there's another reason why we should be praying for other churches. You know, this last two years, some churches, in result, with, with everything going on, some churches have grown, other churches have shrunk, some churches have completely, you know, stopped meeting. Well, well I know of this, and, and it can't just be my heart, but, but I know when I hear of growing churches, or when I hear of, of revival breaking out, or, a, you know, 10 baptisms, there can be a jealousy that comes into my heart. What am I doing wrong? I know of no greater practice in my life and discipline than to pray for other churches, to guard my heart from jealousy of other churches. Such that if revival breaks out in another church, we rejoice because the kingdom of God just advanced, even if it didn't come in our church. That's the third reassurance. He reassures them of the knowledge of God that they have. And then fourthly and lastly, Paul reassures the Colossian church of whose was there. Not grammatically correct, but just go with me, all right? And the whose is Christ, okay? Look at verse 15 to verse 23. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn of the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross." And you, once who were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. I mean, this is good stuff, right? I mean, I wish we had like six hours to just slowly go through all of this, this high and exalting Christology. It's amazing. But let me just remind us that whatever this teaching was going on, the church in Colossae seemed in some way, shape, or form to be denying the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. They needed something else, some other truth, some other practice, some other ritual. More than a hundred years ago in Chicago, um, it was, they, they had their world fair. It was called something else. It became known as the world fair, but they had the world fair about a hundred years ago. And at the world fair in Chicago, more than a hundred years ago, there was this thing called the parliament of world religions. Some of you might know this. And so they got the, the best and brightest of all the religious leaders and got together thinking, oh, okay, they're going to posit the best of their religious traditions 
And together we're going to make a worldwide religion taking the best of each of them. This is the goal of the Parliament of Religions. Well, D.L. Moody, if you know who he was, he was pastoring a church in Chicago and thought this is a great time for evangelism. Great opportunity. And, and, and actually one of the greatest evangelistic things or revivals that have broken up in America actually happened at this time. But many were encouraging D.L. Moody to attack the Parliament of Religions for all of its religious syncretism and its just, you know, tomfoolery, saying just, just attack it. But this was Moody's response. These were Moody's words. He said, I'm not going to first and foremost attack it. What I am going to do is I'm going to make Jesus Christ so attractive that men can't help but turn to him. And that's what he did. He, he, he put different men and women in different places preaching such an attractive Christ that no one could turn away from him. And that's what Paul does. Paul presents such an attractive Christ in order for this church to turn towards Jesus. So what, what he's doing is they don't think, they're, they're struggling with this idea of sufficiency, like is Christ enough? And so what, what, what would you do if someone said, I just don't know if Christ's work on the cross and in the resurrection is enough to save you? Well, Paul says, I know what I'm going to give you. I'm going to give you a really big Jesus. So with the church that is struggling with the sufficiency of Christ, he presents the supremeness of Christ and says, I mean, where else are you going to go? I mean, just, just did, you, did you notice the word all, all throughout this, right? He is firstborn over all creation. This is Christ. By him, all things were created. All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things. In him, all things hold together. The Greek all means all. Okay? Everything. Christ is Lord of all. He is supreme Lord over creation, verse 15, over the universe, verse 16, over kind of anything, verse 17, including the, over the church, verse 18. And then Paul writes about the incarnation, right? The fullness of God dwelling in Christ. So God is with us, verse 19, and then God is for us, verse 20. This is amazing. Christ is the supreme savior and nothing and nobody lies outside of Christ's redeeming work. That's the point. Nothing and nobody is outside of Christ's redeeming work. Now, that does not mean that all people are redeemed. What that does mean that any person the father does redeemed is redeemed only by the blood of Christ. God is God is saying that Jesus is the supreme source. That if you want fullness of life, you can only find it in Jesus Christ. He is the source, the supreme savior. He is the preeminent prince, the glorious Lord, Lord of all. He is the great God, namely Christ is your only hope. And then in verse 21 through 23, he once again reminds these Christians of who they are, what they were, and then says, Continue, keep going. Don't be, be stable in this truth, right? You know, uh, be steadfast. Don't shift from the hope of the gospel. You know, root yourself in this message, right? Forget about novel spirituality. 
hipster faith, whatever that would be. Paul's grounding them in the truth and the message that came to them in the first place and says, don't shift from that hope at all. Now, I love this section because it's not just amazing to contemplate, but really because of the message that Paul is giving to this church. He's saying that if you struggle with thinking that Christ is sufficient, which I think that all of us do in some way, shape, or form, we wake up and go, really? I think this is basically how the devil works. This is my guess. We sin, and instantly the devil goes, you're not worthy of God's grace in Christ Jesus. You're not a good Christian. Look at you. God doesn't love you. And suddenly we think, oh yeah, Christ's work on the cross isn't sufficient. And Paul's here saying, yes, it is. And his argument is Christ's supremacy. He is big. He is Lord of all. It's that old saying, if Christ is not Lord of all, he's not Lord at all. So what does this mean for us? Well, I think what this means is if we want to fight for the sufficiency of Christ, it means we need to put Christ as Lord of every aspect of our life. We need to, in practical terms, we need to put Christ at the center of our marriages, Christ at the center of our friendships, Christ at the center of our family, Christ at the center of our work, Christ at the center of our days, Christ at the center of the things that we are reading and the things that we are watching, Christ at the center of our conversations, Christ at the center of every aspect of our lives. And when we do that, when we are saturating ourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ, when that is the constant rhythm of our lives, we just keep going back and forth. We, we built our weekly lives, like coming to church on Sunday and then, and then studying the Bible and then waking up in the morning and maybe going to bed. We, we have these rhythms where we're reminding ourselves of Christ is supreme in our life. What that means is that is an antidote when other voices will come preaching a different gospel telling you, no, you need Christ and, and then you fill in the blank. Moody's exactly right. More important than attacking, you know, the, the syncretism of our day, the most important antidote to the purity of the gospel is presenting such an attractive Christ, a glorious Christ, a beautiful Christ, that you don't want to turn to anything else. There are many voices. Some are helpful. A lot are not, are they? I know of only one voice, one voice that can steady you in the storms of life. It's the voice of God in the person and work of Jesus Christ who can steady you through anything. He is preeminent. And as he's preeminent in your life and in this church, we will live out that prayer that Paul has. We will be portraits of Christ doing his will, and seeing God work in some extraordinary ways. Let's pray. God, there are many things that we need reassurance of. And so this morning, Lord, I pray if anyone is struggling with assurance, 
Lord, I pray, Lord, that, that, that they would remember their belief in the gospel of Jesus Christ. The love they have for the brethren and the hope in heaven, Lord. I, I pray, Lord, um, that, that you would root us in your word, that we would encourage each other, and that we would, as a church and then individually, preach and teach and display such a beautiful Christ that Puyallup and Tacoma and Bonnie Lake and Sumner can't say no. I pray that we would do that and we would see a harvest of people running to you, finding hope and salvation, being transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of your son. We pray that with great expectations. Amen.